It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app if you have downloaded that app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM, and you can listen on your device of choice anywhere across Canada. And this morning on the show, our guest is in the house, and her name is Wanda Nanabush. She is the curator of the Art Gallery of Ontario Indigenous Art Collection, and is coming up to the one-year anniversary of the newly named uh, gallery, and uh, and we are pleased to have her with us. She is from Beaujolais First Nation. She's also an active community organizer, participating in demonstrations on many things, and as well, she's an author. And uh, she has uh, written the book. I have it right here. Don't go away because I have it with me. Wanda, why don't you tell us the name? (laughs) Violence No More. Writing the book. (laughs) Writing the book. You're writing the book. Yes, it's not finished. Isn't it? Oh. It should be, but I'm too busy. It's coming. It's coming. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's good to know that it's coming. And uh, and yes, I can imagine that you are very busy at the Art Gallery of Ontario, coming up especially to the one-year anniversary. And and congratulations on uh, being the curator, uh, first curator of that. And um, uh, I I imagine it was been a, a very exciting year for you in that regard as well. Yeah, it's been an interesting, hardworking, <laughs> kick-butt kind of year. Uh, we've done a lot of changes at the Art Gallery of Ontario in terms of redesigning the department based on a treaty relationship between Georgiana Uliaric and myself, between Indigenous and Canadian. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the redoing of the McLean Center was a, was yeah. a feat. Yeah. Why, <laughs> why do you say that? Why was it a feat? Oh, it was, uh, there was a lot of fundraising done so that we could actually change, like blow out the walls and make Mm. some bigger galleries. And Mm. um, we kind of redesigned the way that this art is seen. So um, we made a conscious effort to have Indigenous only spaces as as well as spaces where Indigenous art is the center in conversation with Canadian art. And so it's non-chronological. It crosses like history yeah. <laughs> all the way to now. So these are all new ways of curating and and uh, and uh, uh, new for our audiences. But so what, it's been received really, really well. And what was the thinking behind that in terms of setting it up the way you did? Why were you thinking that it should be done that way to for you know uniquely? I think a few reasons. One. I don't really like inclusion models. Mm. I kind of like for Indigenous art to stand on its own terms, to be able to, for Indigenous artists to be able to speak to the things that matter to them, to be able to develop art histories from within our own uh, cultural contexts. But also, um, we don't want to segregate it completely either because we are in conversation Mm. with the art world. We are Mm. in conversation with Canada. Um, So I think that the... The reason that we centered on contemporary Indigenous art is, one, because people today still only are interested in us in the past, and so it's nice to confront them with who we are now. Mm. And also, I think, secondly, if we use a chronology, uh, Canadian art and Eurocentric ideas of art kind of get privileged, Mm. and so we wanted to correct a kind of historical imbalance where Indigenous art is sort of what Robert Hewell calls cultural apartheid, 
And so we want to kind of correct that by centering Indigenous art, even in conversation with Canadian. As you started to think about setting that up, mm-hmm. and then once you implemented it, was there, were there any surprises for you, I guess, in terms of what you saw actually physically happening? Was mm-hmm. there anything that stood out that, that you guys were going, you know, that was a wow or wow, we didn't realize this was going to happen this way or we didn't mm-hmm. realize it was going to sit this way or, or, you know, bring people's attention to different things or, you know, start the conversations that you're, you were talking about in terms of, you know, how to, how, to, how to mix this up together? For sure. I think for me, I curate kind of intuitively and, you know, with my spirit and my body. So mm-hmm. often you don't know exactly what's going to come right. and what exactly you're doing until later. So the the big surprise for me, I think, was just the uh, the way in which the audience, um, a very diverse audience mm. coming from any culture, has been really moved by it mm. and also not afraid of the way in which, because it doesn't tell one story, mm-hmm. it actually just creates a lot of pathways, a lot of different stories, and um, a person can kind of walk through and take what they can from it. Sort of the way Indigenous knowledge works, you know, mm, when you go mm. to an elder, it's kind of that idea, yeah. <laughs> but in a physical form. Yeah. Um, people aren't afraid of that. Mm. So I've found that really surprising because I thought maybe we'd get more demands for a, you know, a singular story yeah. and tell us what to think kind of thing. And we haven't had that at all, actually. People have been quite moved by the experience. I'm wondering, because I, th- I think you, you kind of started this approach before you were actually the curator. You, you, you started implementing uh, to signify that this, in fact, the art gallery was on traditional territory and, 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 and indigenous land, yes? Yes. So when I was brought in to be the curator for the Toronto Tributes and Tributaries, 1971 to 1989, uh, that was, uh, we put the land acknowledgement on the wall. And... It was interesting to go through this process. I've changed it a few times over <laughs> over the last couple of years. Mm. And I think every time I look at it, I want to change it some more. Because the history in Toronto is really, really complicated. Mm. And um, there are a number of nations who stake their claim here yeah. and um, really complicated relationships that we have with no each kidding. other. And, you know, but I love that. So um, if it were up to me, the, the land acknowledgement would be like a couple of pages, you mm. know, yeah. to really give the breadth of the history. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in, a, like in a paragraph, an in a paragraph, we yeah. got it, you know, we got it down, made sure everyone was mentioned. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, it's a, it's a really important thing for institutions to do that. And I think, coming out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls mm, to action. Mm. I mean, that is one of the yeah. one of the starting places for, for many places for many institutions. Now you mentioned a couple of things uh, just prior here. You talked about different cultures coming and seeing this and, and appreciating the way it's set up. So I, I'd like to ask you about that in terms mm-hmm. of what you're seeing from different cultures and if there's a difference between uh, the Canadian people uh, seeing this gallery and, and going through it and people coming from other countries and how they're interpreting it. That's the first thing I'd like to ask. I can only go by my kind of anecdotal yeah. information of who sure. emails me or talks yeah. to me about it or grabs me as I'm walking through the galleries. <laughs> um, but I think what's interesting and what Georgiana and I were really trying to also say is that Canada itself is not white. Mm-hmm. So this idea that it's Indigenous and white Canadians is not really true. Canada is a really diverse uh, country, mm. and the city of Toronto is mm. one of the most diverse mm-hmm. in the world, and now, what, 51% new Canadian? Mm. So people are coming from everywhere. So we're making a concerted effort to make sure that other uh, communities are art 
artists are represented in the collection and also on the walls. So that has been a really interesting, positive kind of response to that. People, when, of course, when people see themselves on the walls, they feel more at home, mm, right? Mm. And I think that is the ultimate goal is to make sure that everybody feels at home at the AGO. What about Indigenous people coming to see it? What kind of things you heard back from them How, in terms of the way you set it up and what their, their comments are? Uh, not enough Haudenosaunee art. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> are you? <laughs> we had to make a joke. Um, no, we have Shelly Nero's The Shirt, yeah, right. and we had <laughs> Jeff Thomas's work up, and <laughs> we will have more. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I just love these kinds of jokes yeah. in the Toronto context. Mm. Um, I think the one thing that I was aware of is some artists want to be um, seen as Indigenous on their own, in Mm. their own spaces, Mm. considering, like, the Mm. issues of sovereignty and all that. And then other artists do not. Like, they want to be seen as Canadian. Right. And so um, made sure that we kind of have both of those choices for artists within Mm. the space. Uh, A lot of Indigenous artists that I've talked to just feel so... um, proud and like they have a space at yeah. this major institution and like they're finally being paid attention to um not that the AGO hasn't done that yeah. in the past there have been shows yeah. and things um Gerald McMaster was there for for a, for a couple of years as the head of Canadian and uh Richard Hill as well was um there a number of years ago as um I can't remember his title at the mm. moment but it was a residency okay uh, it's interesting what you point out there because it, it also ties in history, mm-hmm. the idea of of history in terms of how Indigenous people have been treated. So I, I very much appreciate when you say uh, some artists want to be represented and, and are appreciating the space and don't want to be mixed in with other Canadians because they want that, that moment mm-hmm. to finally say, look, you know, we are, we, we want to stand out, we want to show what we, and we don't want to just be part of the Melage, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge um, of sovereignty is there. And so when mm-hmm. you walk into um, the land room, so we have the water room, the land room, those are the thematics of the, of the McLean Center for Indigenous and Canadian Art. And in the land room, you have Robert Houle, who's an Anishinaabe artist, senior mm-hmm. artist living here in Toronto. And then you have uh, Harris, who is like the group of seven and then we have uh, John's work on the floor, which is these beautiful um, casted wolves mm. staring at each other. Mm. And it's like you don't know if they're coming at each other with uh, kindness. You don't know if they're suspicious. You don't mm. know if they're about to fight. Mm. And so in a way, this this question of land, the wolves are placed there as a way to talk about all the different ways in which we can potentially relate to each other or not. Mm. And then we have this this issue of contested sovereignty over the land in, in Canada and dueling sovereignties in a way. Um, indigenous people feeling they have a, and rightfully, yeah. and I believe this strongly, an inherent right to the land. Yeah. And then that Canadian sovereignty kind of sits on our own. Mm. Whereas, you know, the, the Canadians feel that, you know, our sovereignty is a gift yeah. from them. So yeah. it's a complicated issue. And I think art is one kind of safe way to sort of get at these things and mm-hmm. discuss them, you know. Have you noticed uh, 
I think you mentioned truth and reconciliation. I'm wondering how that has played an impact in, in terms of people coming to see art. Well, we have a lot of school groups mm. and a lot of adult uh, groups coming through really, really wanting to mm. get into the nitty-gritty of the history of this country mm. and thinking that Indigenous art is a place right. to go for that. Yeah. And I think um, because it comes from the subjectivity of, of living Indigenous artists and people, um, the history that you're going to get is not one you can read in a history book yeah. or get in a classroom. So I think it is one of the most challenging ways to come into these histories. We have lots of stuff about um, residential schools and all kinds of things, you know, beside, mm. you know, about relationship to the land, spirituality. Um, we have stuff around community. What is community? How do we relate to our communities? All these kinds of things are, are there. Now, you mentioned uh, the physical space uh, about blowing out walls and doing that kind of thing. So when, when, when you were doing that or thinking about it, mm-hmm. um, how was the space interpreted in terms of you know, bringing this forward and, and making it sort of thought of as an, an indigenous space? Yeah, I didn't do indigenous aesthetics in terms of the space mm-hmm. because I feel that that overpowers the artwork okay. and it lends meaning mm-hmm. to the artwork that sure. the artist sure. may not have intended. Right, okay. So the space is actually much less signifying than it was before. So before it was kind of like these smaller rooms that felt much more like going into a house. You Mm. know, it kind of mimicked the the kind of historical house that the AGO kind of descends from. And um, what we did was actually just create large, big, high-ceilinged galleries so that the artwork can kind of speak on its own term. I mean, there's a reason why we have white walls. Yeah. Galleries, it's partly because the artwork needs to do its sure. thing, right? Yeah. And sometimes you, I don't like the aesthetics of the place to kind of overwhelm the artwork, actually. I'm old school that way. <laughs> I'm not going to put, you know, <laughs> Thunderbirds everywhere and do all that, you know what no, I'm no, saying? No, yeah. <laughs> um, lighting is another aspect that, that plays into it. So uh, how, how did you interpret how that would work with it? Same, uh, same kind of thing or...? Uh, an interesting thing is actually I have this belief that lighting actually designs the visitor's behavior. So, Can you explain um, that? The sort of contemporary style is to, is to light everything, like really bright, including okay. the floor. Yeah. It's called a wash, so it's yeah, like yeah. really bright when sure. you walk in. I actually think that that doesn't work for a lot of artwork um, for example, we have uh, Rebecca Belmore's Rising to the Occasion, which is right. a Victorian dress right. on the front with these saucers mm. <laughs> for breastplates. Mm. And then at the back, there is this beaver dam, mm. which is catching the debris of all the royal kitsch that people like to collect and also newspaper articles mm. and things like this. And, it, and, she, and at the top, it has these braids like shooting up. It's like, if we were angry, what would we look like? And we have these braids standing up in the air. It's satire, right? Mm. It's satire Mm. on a royal visit um, that happened in Thunder Bay in 1987. Okay. Um, Sort of drawing attention to how people are still sort of playing with stereotypes and things like that. So that piece, she likes it to be on the floor, so not on a platform or anything Mm. like that, because it's 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 supposed to be human scale. Yes. And the sense that her body was wearing it because she wore it down the street, you know, in a protest. So that room, I can't remember why, but somehow it was brightly lit and we didn't have time to switch it out. 
So then um, people kept touching it or trying mm. to touch it or mm. we're like going really, really close to it. Mm. And they want to do selfies with it, of course. They want to right. stick their so, head where the braids are, right? Uh, right. And uh, <laughs> um, so uh, we had it relit and I like dramatic theatrical film lighting. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so then you darken it around, darken the room more, and then it gives it a kind of... Uh, it elevates it, yeah, you know, it sure. gives it a yeah, bit yeah. of a, a feeling like you're coming mm. up to something that is um, special yep. and unique and then you're, you're less likely to kind of see it as a yes. object to play with. Yes. And did that work? It did. So you just you just raised an interesting question there about the idea of selfies and about you know <laughs> how, how people want to do they want to do those things for sure. But how does an, an artist? Rebecca and I did it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with it as well. I see. <laughs> but we know to go back, right? There's perspective. You can yeah, stand yeah. really far back and get your head inside right, that same right, right. spot. <laughs> sure. Um, I'm just wondering. <laughs> so, yeah, so what I'm sure it, you have a serious it? question for me. <laughs> I don't know if I have any more. Um, no, I'm just wondering what an artist feels about that. Do they set it up in terms of people wanting to do that these days? Because that's that's what everybody does. Or does it does it lessen the art for the artist somehow? I think it would depend on the artist. Mm-hmm. I think some some artists are quite comfortable with yeah. selfie culture, and um, other artists, um, you know, look down on it. Mm. <laughs> I think um, it was interesting uh, with the Toronto show because I was thinking. One of the rooms was about uh, 70s and 80s artists who started Mm. taking selfies, right? Like Mm. the early selfies. But it was really about feminism and body and all this kind of um, relationship to art making um, as personal and all this kind of stuff. So it was interesting to think about selfies looking back like that. Mm. And is there something more serious about the selfie than than what we think, you know? more than just presenting the best face that I can on online yeah. or yeah. selling things, you know? Sure. So I think selfies are maybe more complicated than we make them out to be, mm. possibly. Okay. <laughs> um, but I don't think it's ruining art. <laughs> okay. Now, you talked about two of the rooms, uh, and I don't know if that was that was it. You said uh, water and... Yeah, so first, the first is um, Origins. Yes. And I wanted to think of origin stories that aren't xenophobic, um, mm. so they're open. Mm. So there's Norvell Morris's The Great Flood. Mm. So that's a story of migration, really, mm. um, and hardship. And I think a lot of tr- people coming from other countries understand migration. Here in Toronto, it's like, I think, part of everybody's story in some mm-hmm. ways, even niche people coming into yeah. the city, right, mm. since the 50s. So um, we start with that. Then it moves into self, which is the idea, which is where the dress is. Um, Rebecca's rising to the occasion, uh, the idea, the way in which we perform ourselves in specific ways to kind of either gain power or understand our relationship to the society we live in, um, a way to present the self. So portraiture for Canadian women at one point becomes a way to mark their place in society, much like the, the men had done their portraiture. So there's all complicated ways to see that. And then uh, land, and then water, because people forget that land is not the same as water. And water is actually one of the main ways that Canada was colonized. Mm. There's an amazing piece in there by Ruth Cuthand, um, who uh, was thinking about the 94 communities that don't have access to clean drinking water. And mm. it's called Don't Drink, Don't Breathe. Mm. And she's an amazing beater, and she beaded 
um, all of the the um, diseases that you would find in yeah. dirty water. Oh, yeah. And she casted them inside drinking glasses and baby bottles, and it's on this blue tarped table. Wow. And it looks really beautiful from a distance, and then you yeah. get closer and you start to see what's yeah. actually happening there. Yeah. And then the transformation is a, is a room that really looks at the unseen, the unknown, the spiritual, and the way artists deal with that, abstract artists, all kinds of artists, performance artists. And then uh, the then there's the indigenous to indigenous room. Um, yeah, and there's a whole bunch of other rooms, but that's the, <laughs> the main change. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good spot for us to take a break. Uh, we will uh, come back after listening to this break and with more from Wanda Nanabush. Uh, she's the curator of the Art Gallery of Ontario Indigenous Art Collection. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest this morning is Wanda Nanabush. She is the curator of the Art Gallery of Ontario Indigenous Art Collection. And it's coming up to the one-year anniversary of the opening of that. And we've been talking about the exhibition and how it's been set up and the different rooms and some of the art and, uh, and how it is being presented within the art gallery. And uh, I guess just before uh, we took a break, um, we, we, we were talking about the rooms itself and how the lighting and how the white walls were set up to make the rooms stand out and, and how Indigenous art in some of the areas are mixed in with other art, Canadian art exhibitions uh, and other artists. And... Um, of course, with the one-year anniversary coming up, uh, is there something special being planned for that? We are not really celebrating the one-year anniversary, but we are making some changes. So some artwork's coming down, some artwork's going to be mm. going up. We have three um, three generations of Black Canadian artists that will be uh, being presented. We have a solo exhibition of Sandra Brewster that's going in. We have a focus gallery in the McLean Centre as well. Mm. Mm. Uh, Winsome Winsome is a African Canadian artist that's up right now, and uh, that will open on July twenty fourth. We have a series of Peter Pitzelak oh, yeah. photographs yeah, going yeah. in. We also we have a space that's devoted to Inuit prints and drawings and uh, Indigenous photography. And that um, Peter is started you know photographing so early in the nineteen thirties, and you know processing his film inside the igloo and he learned all these techniques for dealing with the cold and mm. all this kind of stuff but he was really photographing the community mm. and Peter Sisequesis, um is doing a book uh, out of his online um, work where he was sending out photos of different um, different indigenous communities across Canada and Penguin picked it up and is now creating a book and um one of the chapters is on Peter Pitzelek, mm. so we'll also do a book launch for him at the right. same time in September. Um, actually, it's October 26th during Imaginative, October 25th during Imaginative. Do, do any of the uh, exhibition, uh, exhibits uh, travel? Do you take them on the road or do anything like that? Yes, uh, I curated a large exhibition of Rebecca Belmore called Facing the Monumental, mm. which opened in July of last year, mm. and... It just closed down at the okay. Remy Modern in Saskatoon, and we are. I'm headed out Monday to Montreal to to start installing it, and at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Montreal, mm. and then it goes to Colorado Springs, 
uh, next year, and then we're we're going to stop touring because it's a lot of work. Mm. But yes, the, I think the goal is to take Indigenous art from here and get it yeah. to go out to the world. And speaking of the world, do do many of them get uh, outside of the uh, borders of, of Canada and, and travel, you know, Europe, around the world, other places? Oh, absolutely. The Our network, I think, as far as Indigenous curators, thinkers, and artists go is is global, and mm. we've always been global, if you really think about it, <laughs> since pre-contact. Um, <laughs> what? How many nations are there here <laughs> in Canada alone? <laughs> um, not that we acknowledge the border either. Right. Um, there's a, a, last year we started um, Abaquad. It clears after right. the storm, yeah. which is a gathering of international Indigenous mm. artists, curators, and thinkers. Mm. Uh, largely the desire that I had was to bring us all together so we can think about, like, what if we were the ones leading this interest in Indigenous art? What kind, who is the artist that we would put forward? What kinds of knowledge Mm. would people need to understand the artwork? All Mm. this kind of stuff. Um, Because I saw that Venice, Biennale, like all these institutions and large biennials are really interested in Indigenous art. There's a real resurgence of interest, purchasing, exhibition, um, but people don't necessarily know what they're looking at or what they're going for. So it can lend itself to um, a couple of people being kind of picked everywhere. And I think I'm interested in having us sort of decide (laughs) all the different artists that we want to put forward globally. And I'm also interested in the fact that artists who stay home, like on their reserves, like Faye Heavy Shield, there's a number of artists, uh, Adrian Stimson just moved home to his reserve, um, who may not be able, who may not be accessing this kind of global art world, you know, from there, but uh, doesn't mean their work shouldn't go to these places. So that's part of it, too. Okay. And we're going to take uh, Abaquad to the Sydney Biennale. Oh, nice. In uh, March 2020. Great. Mm-hmm. Now, you just mentioned something about the exhibits traveling and setting them up and then the work involved. If you don't mind, uh, because I think that there's a lot of people that don't know what your curator job entails. Mm. So when you take a, something like that on the road. <laughs> a lot of people just go, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what you do, but it sounds good. That's right. Do you mind do you mind sort of taking us through a little bit of about what it is that, that you have to do when you know we're set, you're setting up an, an exhibit and, mm-hmm. and taking it on the road and going to set it up again? Well, first there is the relationship with the artwork yep. and the artist yeah. and choosing the show, what's gonna go in the show, how it's gonna look. Uh, I do a lot of that through dreams, so I often, if there's a room that's bugging me in my mind, it's just not gelling or the work isn't working. Um, In the planning phase, uh, I will have a dream and it will all get fixed in the dream. And then, you know, then we go to our uh, 2D and 3D designers to do the graphics. They do a floor plan. Mm. Um, And then we go into the space. All the work comes and... Um, you start setting it up. And I find every time I'm in the space, also your body kind of tells you where things should go. Mm. So often the floor plan gets changed at that point <laughs> as you can feel that something may not feel right with where you had imagined it in your mind. Yeah, and that you work closely with the artist to make sure that they're happy with how their work's being presented. And 
yeah, and that happens for every space. So it gets boxed up and sent to the next place and unwrapped and redone. But it's complicated. Like we have a um, 16-foot waterfall. <laughs> That's okay. one, of the, one of the works mm. called Fountain, mm. which uh, Rebecca did for the uh, Venice Biennale in 2005 when she represented Canada. And it really is so ahead of its time because it was addressing kind of the water issue and the idea that we might be able, we might be warring over water one day right. uh, in this work. But you have to set up a real fountain in the gallery with real water, and it's quite complicated. <laughs> and then there's a video projected onto it. So all those things need to be figured out. And right. there, we have a, a work, um, and uh, Rebecca donated that work to the AGO, so it's now part of our collection. And then Tower which is, you know, a 15-foot high (laughs) stack of um, shopping carts that have been fused and cut Mm. um, facing upright. And then real clay, raw clay, is placed inside of it almost like a landslide Mm. or an eruption. It could go Mm. in either direction, but Mm. it's done for the whole 15 feet all the way down onto the floor. Um, That piece being about uh, homelessness and thinking about, you know, the kind of ways people make land, make land for themselves, mm. you know, like a, the, the blanket, the tarp, and the shopping cart become, yeah, yeah. become how you carry your possessions, how right. you move around, how sure. you live. Um, in a world where, you know, towers are going up all the time. Look at mm-hmm. Toronto, look at Vancouver, look I'm at the kidding. world. Yeah. And the more homes that we're building, the higher we go, the more homelessness is actually being mm-hmm. developed. So, yeah. I can definitely see some challenges moving some of that stuff around. <laughs> yeah, I kind of enjoy it. <laughs> That's a now, challenge. The waterfall, you don't have to move the water with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> nope, the water has to be cleaned constantly and changed. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like having a pool. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a couple of interesting things there as you were describing what you do. One, you said dreams. Mm-hmm. And the other said your body kind of tells you and, and the feeling you get. So is is that a normal kind of approach that a curator has or is that unique to you, would you say? Um, in my experience, uh, there, I've met a couple of uh, other Indigenous curators who also talk about dreams mm-hmm. and embodied mm-hmm. practice, like mm-hmm. their body being yeah. part of their practice. I don't meet that many curators who talk or think like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> many, many are, uh, everybody has different interests. So sure. Some some curators think of curating like uh, making an argument and a statement mm-hmm. and, you know, almost mm-hmm. like an essay, but with sure. work. Yeah. Other ones really are interested in the history mm-hmm. and want to place things like chronologically and yeah. historically yeah. and not necessarily in these other ways. So it's all different kinds, yeah. but Yeah. Yeah, Do so I feel it, special? For sure. <laughs> sure, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a, it's a very organic approach. It, yeah. it makes sense from your background, and, and mm-hmm. I guess that's part of what I was getting at. Yeah, there. the niche are hardcore into dreams. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that's very interesting that you, you pull on those things and mm-hmm. that you, you feel the work. And, and I think that's really interesting in, ha- in terms of how you interpret how things should be going and set up. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's sort of what made me feel like I wasn't a curator for a long time because that isn't how it's uh, normally done. But then as you get older and, you know, stronger yeah. inside yourself, yeah. you're like, 
you kind of you get comfortable with the way yeah, you do things. Start to believe in those things. Mm-hmm. And and how long have you been working in that regard? Like when did dreams start to become that thing you 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 knew you were using? Uh, I think always since I was young. Mm. So I think my whole life dreams have been there to help me through lots of things, but mm. figure out relationships mm. uh, for my writing. It's mm. there for writing. It's there for. I've been involved in a lot of different uh, yeah. different fields, and it always comes into play, right. I think, for me. Okay. I trust dreams. When I was young, even, I had um, a reoccurring nightmare. Yes. And I, I was, like, wondering what I should do about this and because it was ruining my dream life, you know, mm. because every time you go to sleep, it's like, ah! Yeah. And so I, I started... I had one of those. Oh, did you? Yeah. They're awful. Well, yeah. and you know, you yeah. can get into trauma and like all that, but we won't today. Um, but we had uh, a bookshelf of of um, kind of psychology books, like mm-hmm. Carl Jung and mm-hmm. and um, Freud, and mm-hmm. there was the interpretation of dreams and all these right. things. And I thought, okay, maybe they know how to deal with nightmares. <laughs> so, so I opened it and I started reading and started doing the journaling thing mm-hmm. that you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. they say, like, if you can move one thing in the dream, yeah. then you have control over the whole dream. Right. Yes. And so I would go every night, every night into it, into it. And then finally I was able to move an ashtray mm. in the room, mm. like just a little bit. And mm. then I could change the, it was so true, I could right. change the entire yeah. dream and I got rid of it yeah. and turned it into a, That's right. to a happy dream. But Normally, dreams are more about like visions and your mm-hmm. inner life and our connection to the spirit world. Right. And I truly do believe that, you know, energy and spirit speaks through us. Right. So, and believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking to the curator of the Art Gallery Ontario. <laughs> 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 in case you just turned in and go, "What are they talking about?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, listen. The other side of this is that dealing with indigenous issues which mm. there are many, we, we just talked about one trauma, mm-hmm. intergenerational trauma, yeah, uh, which is ongoing. Uh, you talked about residential school, there's a 60s scoop, there's, there's so many issues uh, that uh, are, are, are dealt with in art as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, how is that uh, brought through and what have you seen in terms of what you're presenting at the art gallery? Well, one of uh, the policies I have for myself is never to present us as victims of Mm -hmm. anything Mm -hmm. and never to present us as only having issues, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, Carl, you know, Carl Beam is an artist who, um, I think empowered us to think of ourselves as artists in a, in a really new Mm -hmm. way. And he uh, has this work called time dissolve that we have up where it's not obviously about residential schools when you, first look at it, but it becomes very clear and evident as you look at it closer, like his work, you have to look close and mm. start understanding the relationship between different images in it. But part, part way down, there is this photograph of all these guys from Manitoulin Island from uh, where he's from. Mm. And he's got himself circled and then another guy circled in red. And only because I know the Spanish residential school, because our community also had people sent there. My mother uh, did not go there. She went to the mush hole. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, so it, it's a it's a residential school f- reunion photo. Mm. And he, you can tell they're wearing the T-shirts. And he used to make up all these crazy T-shirts for them to wear. And he was really hardcore about 
uh, talking about the way the students were resistors when they were in the school yeah. and the way friendship yeah. became a way to yeah. resist, like yeah, yeah. holding those bonds with each other yeah. and, and learning how to play in mm-hmm. such a harsh environment. All those things, you know, kids are kids are amazingly resilient mm-hmm. in the sense that they can find a way to hold yeah. on to their spirit in, yeah. in even a prison-like environment. Yeah. And so... That piece for me really does that. And then at the very top is the lamentation of Christ, but mm. he's got like white paint dripping over it. So it's almost being erased and the mm. paint kind of drips down. And then you've got his family, his mm. mother, his his brothers and sisters. So you think mm. about what was the primary relationship residential schools was me- meant to break nation, culture, but also family, you yeah, know, starting sure. at that, yep. that core there yeah. between the mother and the child. So I think... Yeah, so the, they're presented in this way. Like I find artists are much more interested in the human experience of something and then also uh, the resistance, the empowerment, rather than looking at us as victims. When you speak to some of these artists about their works, how often do you do you think that art is used as a means of therapy? I think a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing how much... Uh, I mean, we now have art therapy programs because we mm-hmm. understand that yeah, even yeah. just the act of creation yep. itself is a healing thing. Yep. And I always think that must be why Anishinaabe are the most healthiest indigenous nation in the world because <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there is this um, this focus on creativity, like creation is the center of mm. most of our philosophies mm-hmm. and the idea that to enter into the act of creation puts you in one with all of creation. And I think that, and I mean this to sound non-Christian, I think that that is something that artists can tap into all the time. And if you have, you know, I'm thinking about um, most recently, because I was just out with both Rebecca Belmore and Robert Hula last night, but Robert and I were talking about his residential school drawings and how how, uh, after the apology, and that was ruined my birthday it was june 11th 2008 Mm. and he um new things came up for him that he hadn't remembered Ah. you know all Mm. of a sudden these these events can trigger us right and trigger memory and so he started doing these really quick automatic drawings and one of the things that really struck me is he'd like move around the building like in space like move it to the left and move it to the right and once it was in the right spot then the memory would come so there's some kind of relationship to space and his body mm. and mm. this memory stuff. But the doing of it um, led him to do these uh, this series called Shaman Never Die. And you could tell at that point that that drawing practice and talking about it had healed him mm. to a certain extent sure. such that he could look right. and say, okay, the shaman never die, right? Yeah. Like we are going forward. Mm-hmm. This is our this is the legacy of the ancient ones that we are carrying with us right. and they they didn't they didn't destroy our spirit. Mm. Interesting. Fascinating. Mm. Great spot for us to take yet another break. We have to take a pause. We will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM with Wanda Nanabush right after this. We are back on Moment of Truth and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Our guest this morning is Wanda Nanabush. She is the curator of the Art Gallery of Ontario and the Indigenous Art Collection. And, you know, I was, uh, I was wondering, just as we were, we were taking that break, about 
when you when you initially started this working at the uh, art gallery, mm-hmm. how have things changed for you in terms of what you what did you learn in that process? What have you learned? What's different? What have you you know what have what do you now now know that was that you didn't know then? Mm. Um, nothing. I know everything. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, what did I learn? I think working inside any institution, you learn its processes and its patterns and how it functions. So that uh, the AGO is quite a large, large institution. Mm-hmm. I think there are 600 full-time and part-time staff wow. there. So it's quite quite in- ex- intense. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you learn the kind of mechanisms and um, how people relate to each other, all those kinds of things. So I think every time I work in an institution... You know, that's the first kind of thing. You figure it out and you figure out how how to make change within it and who is ready for change, who's not ready for change, all those kinds of things. So I was lucky in the sense that uh, Stefan Yost, who's our director, um, already had such a um, knowledge in terms of indigenous rights and things Mm. like this coming out of the Hawaiian context. Mm. So he was ready and primed to kind of... Mm. Okay. to uh, to help envision where we were going to go and support it. So I think um, I've learned a lot about uh, broad audiences. You know, okay, like yeah. um, I think AGO has one of the most, you know, broadest kind of largest audiences. When you have 17,000 people going through a show, mm. you know, <laughs> in a couple of days or even yeah. in a night, it's sure. it's an intense thing. And then thinking about what is education to the broadest audience and what is, what is art to, how does art reach such a diversity of people? You know, when it, it isn't necessarily imagining that diverse of an od- audience. So as a curator, you're kind of also an, in, an intermediary between mm. the art and the public. Right. So you really have to think about what that relationship is. And the AGO is very challenging in that sense because you have no idea who the audience is. Like it's, it's that big. Right. Well, that, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it brings up uh, some other thoughts that I can't really put my mind around at this point in time. <laughs> but they're there. They might come to mind yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, one thing, though, that did come to mind as you were as you were speaking was space, art, and indigenous interpretation. And I guess what I'm saying is, is there a or do or do, you, do you see a I definitely Are, come at this from an Anishinaabe point of view. Yeah, yeah, and I guess what I'm saying is, is there a, is there a, a um, pushback somehow? And and I don't mean that in terms of uh, a physical pushback or or from the from the the gallery itself. I just mean in terms of space. Uh, mm. in, and 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 does it oh, always sure. work? That you know mm-hmm. in that regard. I think I'm interested in spaces people feel at home in and. You know, I think because of the history of galleries and because of the class that mm. a gallery mm-hmm. entails, yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes that can be the pushback. Mm. So it, it has this way of designing itself and feeding itself as um, a kind of institution for only a specific, yeah. you know, type of person. Yeah. And I think galleries have worked really hard to change that mm-hmm. all the way across the country and... Mm. 
I see this worldwide, actually. The gallery is really working hard to become much more accessible to a broader audience. And uh, some of that is the, the way the space is designed, you know? Yeah. Um, that's why I like working with dirt and water and all these kinds of things, because I think it isn't designed for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you learn a lot about what the space can actually do when right. you bring things in that don't fit or aren't comfortable. And there, I think a lot of the work I'm interested in does push those boundaries. Um, I did the Rita Laton painting show in between the two shows <laughs> between Toronto and Rebecca, partly because both of the other sides are so complicated, you know, but galleries are really designed perfectly for painting, you know, mm, it's like, mm-hmm. and drawing. And yeah. so it's, it was a nice kind of breather, yeah. but again, still being able to bring another indigenous artist to prominent attention. Mm. You know, when you mentioned that. Just like floating around. I don't even know if I'm answering your question here. <laughs> it's okay. No, like, it's a great conversation. And, and, and I guess, you know, when you mention art galleries are great for painting and, and drawing and those kind of things. And I, I think of, uh, to some degree, graffiti or what we're seeing in buildings mm. now on building faces. Yeah. Uh, you know, and how those spaces are being used now to, to bring more art or, or bring more visuals to a city. Mm-hmm. Is there is that affecting anything in terms of art? Interestingly, we have um, Nal Johnson, who is a young um, Anishinaabe artist who who thinks of Norval Morisot mm-hmm. as his kind of artistic mm-hmm. and spiritual grandfather, mm-hmm. and uh, he he does street art really, yep. like he uses spray cans mm-hmm. and but uh, but really looking at the Anishinaabe kind of cosmos and worldview. He, um, we really wanted him to do a project upstairs in the McLean Center, mm. and we had to kind of figure it out, like because you cannot use spray cans inside of a gallery, especially since none of the windows open. This is what I mean; like, there's no air in there, right. you know. Right. <laughs> so it's like, what do we do? And um, so we actually he developed a new process in conversation with our graphics people to think about how we could use vinyl and work with vinyl outside the institution, bring it in, apply Mm. it to the wall. And it looks beautiful and it really worked. He was still able to get all the layers of paint and, you know, his little spirits that kind of creep out of the paint. Um, It's quite beautiful. And he was able to do kind of an immersive thing inside this room. Right. Yeah. So that re- that brings up another question then, and which you just said, how technology and, and how you have to think about things differently and, and how that is affecting how art is being created. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm really interested in new media. And so technology is a constant mm. uh, question, concern, mm-hmm. and excitement. Because... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Things change all the time. Yeah. And so we wanted to put up uh, Mike McDonald, who's this Mi'kmaq artist. And he is like one of the, I think, first new media artists in Canada. And he's influenced a lot of people. So we have this work called Seven Sisters, which was made for televisions, mm. you know, not flat screens, <laughs> yeah. but the old tubes, you know. <laughs> okay. Right. And, you know, has, you know, uh, the old beta SP tapes or whatever, you know, and it was made in 1989. So it's done in the technology of that time. So we want to put it up. And basically it's seven TVs that are made like a mountain range. So it's the seven sisters in BC. It's a Mm -hmm. mountain range. And each one plays its own video. And then there's this beautiful elder singing a song Mm -hmm. um, coming, coming out of it. And he, 
he was so concerned about the environment and that was his thing. So you see these kind of clear cut scenes and then you see animals and it's quite beautiful um, kind of ode to the mm-hmm. seven sisters mm-hmm. and trying to get people to think about their role in the you know environment. And uh, yeah, so we had to think about, okay, so uh, how do we do this? <laughs> you know, right now. So we were able to get permission to digitize everything. Mm. So we do we do have it digital, mm. um, but we're still. I was I really wanted to use the old TVs. Yeah. But it's amazing how we just keep having to swap them out because they're bur- they, they burn, burn right out. out. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, they don't have the <laughs> the longevity. And then at one point we're like, okay, so um, should we start going shopping around for TVs because we need you know we need to keep this work alive forever. Yeah. How large of the screen, like how big of a screen were they working with? Uh, anywhere from like a tiny little 10 to, you know, to a 40. Right, right. I don't even know the sizes anymore. We would have known at some point. But uh, yeah, so they're all all different sizes to create the different mountain range. Retro, yeah. Yeah, it's very retro. There's another artist where we we made a different decision and we digitized it. Mm. And then we actually... um, emptied out the back of the TV and yeah. put digital inside. Okay. So kind of a hybrid yeah. Yeah. hybrid thing. And so then it didn't matter if the TV's burnt out. But yeah, all these kinds of questions about media and new media, is, um, they're kind of fascinating. And then it brings in a whole, a whole other element because of the, the electronics, <laughs> old electronics <laughs> like you were just you know, talking about. Yeah. Things you would never you know, associate with a potential uh, exhibit. No, it's very true. I mean, I, I, we have to migrate, right, to new mm. new technology. And mm. that process of migration, you have to ask whether the artist wanted that or not. And yeah. sometimes they don't. And so you actually have to house right. and store all the old technology so sure. that you can keep playing it. Yeah. And also, I think this generation, you know, this millennial generation mm. is super interested in old tech. Mm-hmm. Like they have a very yeah. nostalgic sensibility. Yeah. Analog stuff. Yeah. yeah, they love it. Yeah, so do true. I. Actually, yeah. I'm a little like that too. So uh, I'm I'm wondering. You've mentioned a number of indigenous artists and other artists that uh, that you know you've either worked with in putting up exhibitions or uh, ha- have brought to to life and and those kind of things. And I'm wondering for people out there that don't know much about art or about mm-hmm. indigenous artists. Can you name a few uh, artists that you believe that, that, are, that are crucial, that people should know about, that they should you know, seek out and, and, and find and, and see their work for their importance? And can you give a little brief in terms of why you think that's important? Sure. This is always the worst question because I want to mention everyone. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. But um, historically, I think it's really important that uh, people in this land know and understand the Professional Native Artists, Inc. So that is um, what we used to say, the Indian Group of Seven, mm-hmm. which is Norval Morisot, Daphne Ojig, mm. Alex Janvier, Eddie Kobanis, uh, Joseph Sanchez, Carl Ray. I wasn't counting, so now I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Don't know if I've missed any. Um, but yeah, so the Professional Native Artists, Inc., um, Daphne Ojig, um, Anishinaabe artist from uh, Wikwemakong. She uh, moved to Winnipeg and opened a gallery in 1971. And they they used to, she wanted to sort of, you know, show off her friend's work, basically. And so they used to have these informal gatherings. And then eventually they formed, you know, an actual organization. And their 
their job was, in their mind, taking us out of the ethnographic anthropological history museums and getting us into these, you know, mm. contemporary art museums, fine art institutions, that kind of thing, and to push the idea that indigenous art is um, not anthropology. Mm. So there's that. I think Carl Beam is a really important artist in in that he he was one of the, the first artists bought as an indigenous artist by the National Gallery of Canada. Mm. And he really pushed this idea of looking at indigenous artists as artists. Uh, Rebecca Belmore also follows in that vein. Um, one of the most um, important artists to bring attention to uh, performance art. Mm. And James Luna, um, I consider him the grandfather of Indigenous performance art. One of his first pieces, he, he um, also in 1987, actually right when Rebecca was doing her march up north in Thunder Bay mm. in her beaver dress, her beaver Victorian gown, he was down in uh, San Diego laying down in a vitrine, making himself a living, living object. Uh, so he was wearing just a loincloth, and they put him under glass as an exhibit. And uh, people would come and stand around and look at him. And he said what he didn't realize is like he's laying in there every day for this yeah. entire exhibition is that he had to hear everything people say, mm. and he couldn't say anything. Right. And they didn't know whether he was living or dead, which tells you a little bit about yeah. how not far we'd come in 1987. Yeah. Yeah. And I think still today... People still think, you know, our mm. dead mm. is still, you know, mm. you're able to grave rob and whatever from mm. us. But that's an aside. He um, he also kind of had these little exhibits that say, like, this scar is from, you mm. know, when I fell off my bike or whatever. Right, or right. Here are my divorce papers. Like he mm. had objects <laughs> related to his yeah. life, his yeah. divorce papers, you know, his sunglasses, things like this. And so it was also satire and playing with the audience mm. expectation that mm. he would be dead, you know, right. that we are something to be seen as a dead thing in a museum. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think these these artists have really pushed that. Um, Adrian Stimson is a really interesting artist um, that we have on view right now at the Art Gallery of Ontario, a new work that we purchased called Old Sun. And mm. it's made out of... He went to residential school, actually three generations in his family went to residential school. Mm. He's a performance artist. He also is two-spirited mm -hmm. and has really brought out the performative performance and two-spiritedness in his work. But this is a different kind of piece. It has um, these steel rods and a, and a light that comes down. The steel rods are kind of done almost like a sweat lodge, maybe. Mm. Could be a lodge. There's buffalo fur underneath. Mm. And... The light kind of casts a shadow, so you see the Union Jack over the buffalo, but the light actually comes from the residential school, so he's made a series of works that are actually with mm. remnants mm. Of, of the burned-down school. Mm. It's amazing how many schools we burned down, right? <laughs> Accidentally, maybe. <laughs> um, so he, this work is, is uh, it's quite beautiful. Like He talks a lot about um, the buffalo and how... You know, central it was to Blackfoot culture mm. and, um, you know, part of colonization is that mm -hmm. kind of extermination of the buffalo also was yeah. an extermination of the Blackfoot, right? right. So, sure. yeah, and that this lodge, this healing lodge is actually where we're going to enter and, mm. you know, mm -hmm. get all that back. Right. So, yeah, tons of artists. Ursula Johnson, Nadia Mir. Ursula is a Mi'kmaq artist from out east. Um, she just won the Sobe Award a couple of years ago. 
She trained under uh, Mi'kmaq basket making under her great grandmother, who's brilliant at it, Black Ash. But she takes it in a whole different area, mm-hmm. another area into performance art and sculpture and installation. So yes. really, cool. really interesting artists. There's We're, so many. Yeah, there is for sure. I appreciate <laughs> you you expanding on that and saying a few things about some of these artists. One thing I thought you were going to say about uh, about the artists laying under this glass uh, was the heat of the sun on him constantly mm. and you know and how that would have impacted him as well <laughs> laying there well you know they never let the sun in a gallery mm. <laughs> true because <laughs> the work will fade <laughs> right. yeah um so uh i'm just wondering quickly is do you have any any uh anything you can add about the future what do you see for the future of art and indigenous art Oh, the future is indigenous. <laughs> oh, okay, that says it all. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, that's great, um, Wanda. Thank you so much for uh, t- coming on the show today and uh, sharing your time with us and telling us about the Art Gallery of Ontario and these artists. We greatly appreciate you coming in. So, Nyawagoa and Chimigwech. Chimigwech. Thanks for having me. You betcha. <laughs> thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Moment of Truth. And Element FM. I also want to say Nyawa, Miigwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, Miigwech, and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.